welcome to episode two of City Views with Jed and John. I'm Jed Lewin. I'm John Antretter. And today we are drinking a bourbon from New York. This is Hudson. It's local. Bold and light. I was a little scared for this one, but it's actually pretty good. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. And it's from New York, so. Yeah, that's why I was scared. Fabulous. Um, so, Jed, I think it's important to go into in the last year you've started your own team. You're one of the top five producing teams here at the Agency New York. How did that happen? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. And it, it didn't happen by accident, but the timing was sort of accidental. Um, we had a woman working for the agency who was running... Um, our growth team and she's got an MBA. She's incredibly talented, incredibly sophisticated. And she approached me about her interest in becoming an agent. Um, and I recognized quickly that while maybe I wasn't exactly in the place with my business where I needed to hire another agent, this was sort of like really unique talent to have access to. Um, she had some fabulous ideas about how to grow the team. Uh, some really great skills from her prior career in sales. And I, I just realized I would be a fool not to do it. Yeah, I feel like if you're good at recruiting, you've got to be good at closing clients too. Yeah. Um, so she was a game changer um, and it's really helped our business take off. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. And you were going to ask me who my clients are, who I, <laughs> oh, who I typically work with. I completely forgot the next point. Um, yeah, so tell me, what's your favorite kind of client? Like who is your... Who's your target audience? What customer base do you think you hit the most throughout the year? Well, very, very wealthy, obviously, is my, is my favorite and my target. Right. We really only uh, like them rich. <laughs> you have to have enough money. You have to be a cash buyer. Um, but honestly, you know, because of my background, I've, I've lived here in the city my whole life, and I practiced law for a long time. So I know a lot of professionals, a lot of lawyers, a lot of doctors, a lot of bankers, a lot of dentists, a lot of therapists. Um, and as the father of two young kids... Um, I find myself working with a lot of young families as well. Uh, my son is in kindergarten on the Upper West Side. So we interact with a lot of families that are expanding, growing, moving into new spaces, downsizing, upsizing. Um, and that's been great. So, you know, with my background in the law, Lauren's background uh, with her MBA, um, we really do wind up working with a lot of professionals. No, that makes a lot of sense. Where would you say your, your core business is? My business is a little diverse. I think it's a little bit maybe more diverse than yours. You know, I don't just have like a family clientele. I have, um, I do have some lawyers that I work with, but I do work with a decent amount of international buyers, um, especially from Asia. Um, some of them are purely for investments. Some are um, relocating to New York and they're trying to buy. And sometimes they buy more than one property. Sometimes they'll pick up two and rent one out. Um, and then I'd say I also have a stable customer base, which could be finance professionals, usually not just like entry level starting out. I think it's more like VP level and senior seems to be kind of my core. Um, generally, those kind of people start looking for three bedrooms or more. Not saying that I don't work with the lower, um, you know, associates or analysts, but I think that a lot of those people end up renting for a bit. And then when they get married, they look to buy and then they're going for either those two or three bedroom apartments. And so I think that that seems to be a real stable part of my business, probably 25 percent each year. Um, and then I work with a decent amount of doctors, a few lawyers, um, and I think that covers about it. I mean, I, yeah, I think I have, and then I have people that I work with that are downsizing because their kids have outgrown their apartments, you know, they're out of college and let's say they don't need to be in the Upper East Side anymore and now they're going downtown. But in the reverse, I've got families that start downtown and 
you know, they stay down there for as long as they possibly can, and then they have to move back up to the Upper East Side or, or up to the Upper West Side because they're tired of commuting for the kids' school on a daily basis, and it's, you know, just wasted time in the car. Um, and so typically then they'll sell with me downtown and they'll move uptown and buy, and then, you know, 15 years later, I hope they'll be moving back down again. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, you are one of the top individual agents, typically going back and forth in the top one, top two. Um, have you ever thought about starting a team? Well, first off, I love the, com the competition element of this business and within our firm, too, where I like to stay within the top one position, but it's, you know, it teeters on two here and there. Um, does that drive me to stay as an individual? No. Uh, versus becoming a team. I have thought about becoming a team multiple times. We almost partnered up at one point, too. Uh, but I wasn't ready, and I'm, I still don't feel ready for that. I do have a full-time assistant who does both my admin work, you know, things like the marketing that I, I mean, I haven't been in the marketing website in three, four years now, so I'd be blind without her. Um, but also she'll do showings for me when I'm out with clients, or um, if I'm in a meeting like this right now, she's out showing for me today. And then on top of that, I have two virtual assistants, one which solely works on prospecting, and then the other one works on lead conversion from the prospects. So, you know, I feel like I have a little team within myself yep. without being officially a team where I don't think I need multiple agents out showing for me at this point. It sounds like you run a team without sharing commission. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to share commission. <laughs> uh, no, I pay, I pay by the salary. Uh, <laughs> a little commission here and there, but I, I do like to keep the, most of the pie for myself. Um, so in terms of like where your business is coming from, you get a lot of repeat referral, and now you have a couple different virtual yeah. assistants prospecting. I you. think the big thing with the market today is you have to diversify, right? Like you can't solely rely on referral business. You can't solely rely on you know, let's say like it's a lead from a website like Street Easy or something like that. You have to be diverse. So what I've done is I have somebody that I essentially go out and I'll buy building lists and their sole purpose, and it's generally buildings that I've done transactions with, sure. whether it's one transaction or it's five transactions. I try and, you know, capture that audience and say, hey, I've done business in your building before. And that's who I'm going after. I'm going after the buildings also that I like. If it's a building I dislike, I'm not going after it, right? And... I try and then convert those sellers into, oh, sorry, those homeowners into sellers, and then hopefully those sellers become buyers. So it's not just one transaction per building. I try and go after multiples. And that's a cycle of both mailers and direct contact, direct yeah. outreach. Um, it's interesting that you, you focus so much on the prospecting, like that cold calls and cold mail. Um, yeah, when, well, I mean, that's one of the things. You've had a 20-year law career, right? I worked three years out of college for a bank. At that level, you're not converting bankers into clients for, because you worked with them and you just started in real estate, right? So I had to really get out there and kind of go after the cold calling aspect to yeah. build my book of business. And I was pretty successful at it. So I feel like if I can do it at this point in my life, I'd rather not make 100 calls a day, but I'd rather employ someone who can. Absolutely. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And if I'm out converting the clients. And all that, it's about conversion too, because like those cold calls can be the meeting, right? It's about converting them on the spot and building rapport and not just having it be you take them to one listing or, you know, one meeting. You have to turn it into a relationship. And I think one of my skills is rapport building. Well, I mean, that is the core skill. So, For the clients that I really like. So one thing we talked about last week was, you know, real estate. And I don't know if this is a, a popular, unpopular view, but I don't think of myself as working in real estate. I'm not an architect, I'm not a designer, I'm not a developer, um, I work with people, I'm in sales, and my job is to 
deliver the highest level possible of service right. to customers. And the fact that we're looking at apartments is sort of incidental to the process. The, the process is about establishing a relationship, building rapport, and then guiding them through a typically stressful, difficult transaction and making them feel good throughout the process. No, I agree completely. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy the search process. I enjoy, I, I called it matchmaking in our last episode. I believe that. It's about finding the right home for your client. Um, and I enjoy the process too of even, let's say you don't love that client, right? Making that client believe that, that you love them. But then getting the job done for them is more of an accomplishment in my mind because I feel like I've challenged myself more. I mean, it's, it's always a bit of a challenge, right? But when you're having fun doing it with the client you love, it makes it you know, the best job in the world. Absolutely. But sometimes you don't love all your clients or sometimes your clients drive you a little crazy and or you know, sometimes their schedules are just impossible to work around. But then it's once you find the one and once you actually close in the apartment, I feel like that's the most exciting part then of the you're job. you're done with them. Yeah, you're kind of done with them. I mean, you still have to do the same follow-ups and, you, you know, continue to prospect that client into, you know, sharing more business because the goal is always to get more referrals from your clients, their family, their friends, their network. Um, you know, you send them the holiday, you know, contact points, you send them the gifts and things like that. But yeah, I think it's always more enjoyable when you're on the same, you know, playing feel as your client mentally or emotionally oh, absolutely. Uh, and you build a great connection, but that's not always the case. And so I find that those people that I end up thinking, God, this one's going to be a lot more work, a great challenge because I feel like it's actually more rewarding in the end. Um, speaking of challenging the market right now, pretty challenging. Yeah. You it's, know, it's, been, it's a, been some headwinds. it's a strange time. And I think that's the best way to put it. It's, I'd say it's still definitely a buyer's market, so it's not the best time to be representing a bunch of sellers, but I feel like people are selling right now with a purpose. I think that's absolutely right. You know, you, there are ways to get deals done. And um, recently we had Mauricio Umansky, the CEO of the agency, um, come to our, here in our new New York flagship office. And we had about 200 or so agents here in New York. Uh, and Mauricio led a panel discussion. Uh, Top producer panel. Top producer panel. Thank you. Thank that you, you were on. Um, and, oh, I'm blushing. Uh, and the, the I don't focus, do out the compliments that much, so you might as well take them when you get them. The focus of the panel, one of the questions I liked was on, on deal-making and what it takes to be a deal-maker in today's environment. And one of the questions I liked that Mauricio asked, um, the question I liked the most was, how big of a gulf between a buyer and a seller is too big? What are your thoughts on that? I think it really depends on the kind of buyer that we're working with. Um, if I'm working with an investor, the gulf could be quite big because there's not that emotional component. So I think for an investor, it purely is going to be dollars and cents. I mean, I work with some investors, which I simply show them virtual like tours. They don't come in. They don't look at it. They will buy it off of a video uh, if the number is right. And if that number is $25,000 off, they're not going for it. And that's something that I understand, and I know how to go to bat for them because I understand their process. It's all numbers and dollars and cents oriented. Have there been missed opportunities for that? Absolutely. You know, we could have bought something last summer that would have had a great cap rate, but we were literally $35,000 apart because it was 25,000 in price and then another 10,000 in an extra mansion tax. Is that, that's how far away we were. Um, it was pretty close and my client should have just gone for it, but we didn't. But, uh, but we're looking for more properties as we speak. So it's not like a big deal for me. Um, but, 
then there's the emotional component with an actual end user. When it's somebody who's going to be using the apartment for their primary residence, that's where I think it's a totally different story where that gulf can be too big if it's out of their price point, right? If we're going to start low on a property because it's simply out of their range, that's one thing. If it's a buyer who says, oh, I love that apartment, but let's see how good of a deal we can get so we start really low, um, that's that's a totally different story. It's all about that emotional component. Um, and I've had clients too. It really it depends on the property. There are some things that as a good real estate agent, we can distinguish between a great apartment, let's say a great level of construction versus you know, a cheap developer finishes or something like that. And you say, okay, this apartment has a lot more value that not everyone's going to recognize, right? right? Or it could be the this block is so much better because we have intimate knowledge about that block versus, let's say, the Upper East Side. It might be 64th Street versus 63rd Street. 63rd Street's a much more um, heavy flow of traffic because you've got people that leave the 59th Street Bridge and they take 63rd Street across town. 64th Street is a nice, quiet, tree-lined walk. Little things like that, if you're just looking at real estate in forms of dollars and cents, you may not factor in, oh, 64th is actually, in my opinion, much more valuable well, than 63rd. What's the difference between buying a stock that happens to be $10 a share less than it was the day before versus buying a home? You're going to right. be living in it. Exactly. So it takes that emotional component of, is it somebody that wants to start low just because of the cost and they want to save money? Is it they're starting low because that's all they can afford? Or they're staying low because they're hoping that somebody doesn't recognize the same opportunity. And so we're going to start at a more reasonable number, but then we can come up quickly. So it's all specific to each individual client, what their needs are and what their abilities are. So we may start on, at $3 million for an apartment that's asking three and a quarter because they say, hey, let's try and get it. And that may not happen, but it depends. If I saw this as an opportunity that no one else did, we came in at $3 million and then my job is to convince that seller's broker, hey, we're offering you $3 million because it's the best deal, right? If three other people come to them with offers and it's not then three and a quarter anymore, now we're talking about multiple bids over ask, then you have to go where the client wants. And I mean, in that exact scenario that I just talked about, we ended up at three and a half and winning, but we started at $3 million. That's great. So it just depends on the financial ability of the client, but also what their motivations are. And, and that sort of goes to something that I feel like most people don't understand um, about the market here, and really the real estate market anywhere, is it doesn't matter what the comps say. What matters is how much someone is willing to pay for an apartment. Exactly. And if someone's willing to pay more than you think it's worth, then they're going to. And if someone doesn't think it's worth as much as you do, they will offer less. But it's value to the consumer versus, you know, a stock, which, has, you know, a fungible commodity yeah. has, has a set value. If we're looking at real estate like a stock, for example, you may say days on market is the biggest indicator that something is overpriced, right? Generally speaking, that may be the case, but I've had listings where we might be on day 45, 47 on the market and we get one offer. And then by three days later, Everyone knows we have an offer and everybody wants what they don't, what they can't have, right? So at that point, you may end up with three offers because all you did was get one. There's nothing that baffles me more than a broker that says, hey, let me know when you have an offer. I think that if your client is interested enough, be the first offer. Get their foot in the door while no one else does. Why should it be? We want what we can't have. So we're going to say, hey, come to us when you have an offer so that then, great, John, you get yeah, into a bidding Agents war. are looking for you to create the urgency for their client for them. Exactly. And I think that that's just a poor way of doing business. 
I would tell my clients the opposite. I said, you want to be that first offer, but we're going to come in at the right price. So hopefully we get it for a better value than we would get it in two weeks when we have four offers to compete with. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think if there are deal makers on both sides of the transaction, there's really, you know, taking the emotion out of it for a second, there's really no gulf that's too big for two deal makers to, to, um, to bridge. Because if you're not viewing a transaction as a zero-sum game where one party needs to win in order for the other party to lose or vice versa, you will work towards a suitable resolution to the deal for both parties. Absolutely. Similarly, you know, if you, if you have your hackles up about something or you're digging your heels in because you want to win, it doesn't matter how small the gulf is between the parties. I just had a deal at a million and a half dollars where we were arguing over $10,000. Yeah. I remember and, listening to you talk about that. In, in my mind, when it gets to be that petty, that's where I feel like I'd rather say, okay, I'm going to find this person that better property and then say, okay, screw you to the yeah. broker who is being an asshole and walk away from that deal and say, you could have had it for this, but we got something else that was better. And I did my client a better job. And that might just be, especially in a high rise where let's say someone's going after an apartment on the 15th floor, 15B, for example, I'm going to call 14B and I'm going to call 16B yeah, and say, right. Hey, I have a serious buyer who loves this building and loves this line, but 14, uh, you know, 15B is unreasonable and we can't come to terms. So we'd love to do a deal with you. We're, Hey, between 13 and 15, those views don't change that much. You know, go down a couple of floors, go up a few floors, see where, and, and by the way, there's value in a floor height change too. So if my client right. wants to spend a little bit more money on, you know, 17 versus on 15, that's their prerogative. And it's probably a better scenario. So that's where I will do whatever I can to get someone the best deal, but also the best property. If 15 was that valuable, I'd say, okay, then you should just pay the extra 10,000. That's right. But you have to if help, it's, you if have to help no, clients get out of their own way sometimes. Sometimes it's just a pissing contest, that's you know, right. who who's going to last the longest. And it's like, okay, that's not yeah. the way to think about something that's going to be so intimate as your home, especially if you're an end user. What is $10,000 when you're comparing, you know, 1.5 million? Especially over the, the lifetime of owning the home, yeah. which is typically Whether you finance it or you pay the 10000 out of pocket. It's not much money. It's, it's a drop in the, in the barrel. Something. Exactly. It's, 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 it was an embarrassing difference. And I think you guys worked over $10,000 on the, on the course of three months. It was, a, it was a big standstill. We did. But at the end of the day, that was the unit the client wanted. And you said you have to meet your clients where they are. And that client only wanted to be in that building and only wanted to see that unit. Yeah. So, so I met him where he was and we found a way to resolve that. Absurd. I'm glad absurd. they were patient enough to wait for it. Yeah. But yeah, I think that that's where time can kill deals. I think time is the best killer of all deals. And I think it's, it's a big mistake when you find the right property to wait. I mean, I just did a deal. It's currently still in contract, but two months ago where we looked at the property in July, we went into contract on that property in February. And it's just like, what changed between July and February that made the apartment that much better? Nothing changed that made it better. But then they waited too long. Had we made an offer in November, December on the property, we could have probably saved another $100,000. But we waited until we heard Oof. that somebody else wanted it. And that's when they said, oh, God, we need to get this. 
And we paid more than we would have done if we had, you know, gone in 60 days earlier. Yep. But it's because they couldn't, they couldn't live without this property. They said, this is the one. Well, once someone else wanted it. Yeah. When someone else wanted it, they realized that they had to have it. So how do you handle offers? Do you have a negotiation strategy when you head into a transaction? I like to have a conversation with the buyer and figure out exactly what their motivation is so that we can best structure it. I don't have a boilerplate, hey, we're going in 8% under the asking price. I look at comps to see what the recent sales are in the building. I look at the level of renovation that the apartments had or it could be required if it needs to be gutted. And that's how we determine as so long as the client gives me the ability to do my job, that's how we determine the first offer price. Right. I don't just like to say, hey, let's throw darts at a board and see what lands, right? I say, okay, this is what it realistically should sell for, and this is where we're going to start. And 95% of the time, they'll agree with me, but then you always have the person who thinks that they know what they're doing better than we do, even though we're working together, and say, no, let's go this route. And nine... Doctors, lawyers, bankers... Financial well, it depends. I've realized it really depends on the person's ego, right? It, ego gets involved in this a lot. And I've realized that my clients that are partners at law firms realize that it's not their expertise, right? It's yeah. mine. And they respect it. It's usually like that fourth year that thinks that they know right. what they're doing and we don't. I negotiate all day. Yeah. Nothing to do with real estate. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But it really depends. Sometimes it's the opposite. It, it's not It's not all the same scenario. I've had great lawyer clients that trust my logic. And that's that's the thing where it really varies on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, it depends how much time they spend looking at real estate online as a hobby, too. They're, they think that they're experts. I love, like, the client that ends up being a, a client of yours who then turns into, oh, you know what? I think I should do real estate because I enjoy it so much. Huh. And it's like... Hey, right. here's the here's a link to get the classes. I always say, yeah, you should do it. Bring your client list and come work for me. Yeah, I mean, by the way, anyone that I've sent the coursework to doesn't sign up. Uh, but you know, try it for for not sixty days. Knows this, but lawyers licensed in New York do not have to take real estate courses. That's great. So they don't have to not pay your commissions because <laughs> they could do it on their own. Um, how about my least favorite question? My least favorite question I get from buyers all the time: What's the lowest offer we can submit without insulting the seller? Do you ever get that? I mean, I get that a lot, but I think that it, again, that's where I direct, I, I take charge and I steer the conversation. I don't think it's smart to just insult someone to insult someone. You know, if we're talking about a $7 million property that's worth six and a half, right? If it's worth six and a half, you go in maybe at six, right? And see, depending on what it's like, you know, if it's something right. that's that's going to sell quickly, I'm not going to tell them to go in that, that low. I would tell them to come in more conservatively. But if it's something that's, you know, dramatically overpriced and there's no other buyers for it, that's where you have more leeway to be more aggressive. But it also depends, do they want it or not? And will somebody just say, hey, F off, we're not working with you again? Right. Now, money does talk, though. So anyone that oh, still right. says the whole, like, I'm not going to work with you because you insulted me, I've never had that happen to me before. It's never had that happen to me. No. Money talks. But look, you, it sounds like you and I have a pretty similar approach. You look at the property, you run the comps. You figure out a range where if rational actors are on both sides, where this property should trade in a rational market. And then you work backwards from there. You say, it's going to trade at X. So I, I have a rule. I like to do three moves in a negotiation. Beyond that, you start dickering nickel and dimes and it's counterproductive. So I like to set up with the clients. This is where the property is going to trade. Our opening bid 
is designed to elicit this counter from the seller. This will be our second counter. We can anticipate this will be their counter, and then we'll have a deal. Yeah. And there's three moves. And anything, once you get into four or five rounds, it's just not going to happen. I don't, I'm not a very patient person. So sometimes I like to have a conversation with the seller's broker and I say, what is your client like? Mm -hmm. Should we just come with our best foot and we're not moving off of it? Or should we come in and be prepared to have a little bit of room? That's what I mean about having a deal maker on both sides of the exactly. transaction. If your, client, um, if, if your client's interested in a property where the broker on the other side is interested in getting a deal done versus interested in winning the transaction, then you can have that sort of open discourse between the, the two brokers and you're most likely to come to a, a mutually beneficial resolution, which is the whole point of this. Right? We're not trying to win. We're not trying to extract well, I mean, maximum pain. We like to win. but Winning winning's great. But we're not trying to extract maximum pain from the other side. I mean, sometimes. I mean, it really depends. Um, I think we're looking for a deal wherein both parties are sitting at the closing table happy. Yeah, I mean, I generally like my clients to feel happier. Um, I mean, I think at the closing tables where they hate my clients and, yeah. and, and hey, that's too bad for them, but my clients got the best deal possible, right? Um, those are never like the, the fun closing tables to attend, but I think there's something to be said about when you're working with another broker where you guys can have a, a good line of communication, because yep. communication is key too, especially if you're getting a good deal on a property, because you do need to be aware of whether they hate you so much because you're getting such a good deal that their goal for the next five or seven days is to find any offer possible right. that's going to make your deal look worse. Exactly. And then they just trade and go with the other transaction. And, and that's why... In my opinion, it's important to to have deal makers on both sides. I agree. For we don't always have deal makers, though, and sometimes it's oh, no. because of the client. It's not always the broker's fault Absolutely. when a deal is sticky. We, it could just be that they're working with a bad uh, seller who who's being the most difficult, and and that happens too. Where the sellers can be difficult, the buyers can be difficult. It could be both sides are and, difficult, and, and our many, jobs just get a deal done. How many times, when that situation arises, does the other broker or you pick up the phone and say, "Look, off the record, my client's being an asshole." Yeah. Here's, happens here, all the here's time. Here's the offer we're going to submit, but I'm telling you, that's the best. We can come here. I've had it where okay, we can come to terms at this number, but he's not going a dollar over. Or you say, look, like I want to make this clear: this person is not coming up. So right. we understand it may be low in your mind, but it doesn't matter because we're going to justify it with X, Y, and Z. And we'd love to get a deal done. We'll get it done fast and clean. But that's the number. And I kind of like those scenarios where I can at least be honest and say, look, there is no going back. And if they try countering us, the quick answer is, hey, no, it's not going to work. We're firm at this number. Sure. I mean, now, some people position. say that, though, and then they, they say, oh, my, my number is X. But then when they're presented with Y, they'll say, mm, OK, like sometimes that works for them. And that, that sometimes is what happens, too. It, it's, it varies. Every situation is different. Our job is to get what our clients want done uh, for the best possible price. Yeah. Uh, whether we're representing buyers or sellers. Absolutely. But sometimes it, it doesn't happen because of that bad broker on the other side. So what would you say is your favorite part of the job? I mean, I love to show homes. I think I think that I've said earlier, I enjoy the process of finding that best property for my clients. You like to show buyers. I like to show buyers, but I also like to show my listings. You know, yeah. I find it in, I find it to be one of the more fun parts of the job. Because yeah. like, yes, you know, so we're selling property, we're 
we're salespeople. I mean, we're not used car salesmen, but we are salespeople. Used department sales. Yeah. yeah. I mean, technically we do sell resales. So yes, that's used departments. Um, but I think that the fun part is to, to show the properties. I enjoy the negotiation yeah. a lot too, but I like the part where you're with a client and you see that this is the right one. And that I always like to say that I, I enjoy being right. Um, so I do enjoy like having like a little we email a proof. Breaking, breaking news, John Antrover. I'm always I'm right, right, but I, I always like people to tell me that I'm right. Um, and that's something where I like to have said, hey, I know going into this, like I believe this is going to be the right one for you or this is going to be the one. And then they'll be like, yes, like you were right. I yeah. love that. But, um, but that's where I think I get the most enjoyment is finding that one unicorn for the client. It's great. I mean, it's a great feeling. But then you have to get it for them too. So you can't just well, find it. That's where the negotiation kicks in. And then it's about getting it for the best price and, you know, getting that contract signed and then getting the board package approved with the co-op. But I've never had a board package not approved. So it's a pretty good track record. That is a pretty good track record. It is. I've only had one. But. Oh, work with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, this is really a fun job. But it is. If you, if you can... If you like the people stuff, if you like the negotiating, if you like apartments, and who doesn't like cool apartments? I mean, you're Absolutely. showing you're showing three, four, ten, fifteen million dollar apartments every day. I'm showing two, three, four, six million dollar apartments every day. It's fun. It's cool. Um, and I grew up here in Manhattan, so like going into these apartments that I've been in the building, I've been in the building, you know, at some point in my 29 years, um, it's just been great. Like I, I love it. I love working with clients. I think my favorite thing, other than establishing rapport, is I love showing homes as a seller's agent. I love selling the home. It's the only time we really, in my opinion, we really sell. And I think it's fun tailoring a presentation to someone you don't know. It's not your client. Um, they're walking in and in 30 seconds asking them the questions that will elicit, what are, what are they looking for? And who are they and what are they bringing with them to the transaction? Mm -hmm. And figuring out what's going to turn them on. Well, I think that's what it says it's apart from some of our competitors because sometimes you'll bring a buyer to someone's listing and they sit on the sofa and go, okay, like walk around. This is the kitchen. Yeah. This the kitchen's the over there. I'll be over here. Let me know if you have any questions. This is the bathroom. And that's, I think, the worst way to sell yeah. a home. Right. But at the same time, then you start selling their listing for them to your buyer. Right. Um, but then you also get to point out the flaws, right? So that's one of the things that that's when a seller's agent's taking you around and showing you the property, they don't highlight those flaws that you can highlight to your buyer and say, okay, like they did a great job at this bathroom. However, it looks like they did tile over tile. They didn't actually do a gut renovation. It, it's pretty shitty quality right? Um, or that kitchen, oh, they did a great job replacing the doors. They didn't actually take off the cabinet boxes. You know, they didn't, all they did was they changed the countertops and the door hinges. You know, there are little things that you can point out to your client to show them both the pros and the cons to an apartment where sometimes when a, when a broker is taking you on a tour of the listing, yep. you're not highlighting these things, but you're also walking quickly enough that the person's getting the whole I'd say the, the best tour they can possibly get, right? So I think you're doing a true disservice to your, to your sellers when you just open the door and say, okay, good luck, walk around, let me know what oh, you think. I, I would, unless someone tells me, I just want to walk around. That's I, true too. Sometimes you got to give them a little heads up, you, no, they don't want your spiel. Right. We're going to walk around and do our own right. thing. Um, I've had buyers where the very first thing in, inside the door I'll tell the seller's agent is, 
Hand her a floor plan. We got this. She's got it. But that's not every that's not every buyer. Um, what's your least favorite part of the job? Working with clients that I don't actually enjoy. But my goal is to make them believe I enjoy it. So then I get joy out of making them think that I enjoy their company. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's where it's acting, but I'm not professionally trained. Right. Okay. That, I mean, look. And we all have people, clients people that, are, that, that people don't love to work with. That's right. You know, we all love their, their money, though. Um, but we don't always love the client in particular. And I'd say I probably yeah. have one of those a year. I'd say 98% of the time I enjoy the client. I enjoy working with them. But each year I like to point out when it's the one um, because I find it so much rewarding, more rewarding to close that one client. And, and usually it's not even a great price point, but it'll feel as if I close a $10 million deal because it was so many hurdles to get through sure. to get to that closing table that it's actually very rewarding in the end. Oh, and you know, I'm actually very good at my job. Because they didn't realize that I detest getting their text messages. <laughs> no problem is too big. No commission is too big. We'll take care of you. Yeah, that sounds um, about right. That's right. Good. right. Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground today, John. Yeah, we've got a lot more to discuss the next couple of weeks. That's right. Well, cheers to episode two. Cheers, Jed. It's Thanks, a pleasure, Brian. as always.